0: Hello, and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle, and thank you for joining me at wwwsonic as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. You can also check out the podcast on Google, Apple, and Spotify, as well as uh, other podcast software. You can also check me out on twitch.tv, backslash Scuttle Lemur. I haven't been on there in a couple weeks uh, due to uh, the way my schedule's been worked out, but hopefully I'll be on there again in the near future hopefully by the end of the week and that is at twitch.tv backslash you can also check us out on patreon.com backslash and i uh, i'm going to be doing some uh brief ups on older movies i see for the first time uh this this month i'm going to do a bit of a uh, discussion on science fiction why i it is kind of my favorite um Film genre as well as some other things. So that is at patreon.com backslash Today we are going to be looking at two of the films of the uh filmmaker Terrence Malik. Uh he was one of the filmmakers that came out of the 70s era, and uh he's been back pre-prolifically uh for the past couple of decades. And uh, we're going to be talking about two of his films from the past decade, uh, 2011's The Tree of Life and 2019's A Hidden Life. Uh, joining me on the podcast today is the host of Snarky Faith. He's been on the podcast before. We've talked about Christian Cinema, The Omega Code, The Passion of the Christ, and Dogma. Please join me in re- welcoming back to the program Stuart Deloney. Thank you very much for joining me.
1: Great to be here, Brian.
0: Um, we're I, I love that we're uh, talking about two films who really have nothing to do... Well, first of all, before we get to the films and, and uh how how are things over Snarky Faith right now?
1: <laughs> things are going fine. The, the ship is sailing quite well with Snarky Faith and there's always plenty of uh, insanity within <laughs> Christianity and religion. So I think we've always got stuff to skewer. So we are... We're loaded up,
0: yeah. for a while here. <laughs> well, I, I I will say this is certainly a uh, change of pace for us in terms of our discussions, because when we were mm-hmm. when we were talking about Christian cinema, we were we were talking about a lot of uh, fairly terrible movies. Um, although we mm-hmm. you know we we got a chance to uh, talk about the Passion of the Christ, which if which depending on your perspective on the film can be either. A really good film or a really... uh, really, It's torture porn. Yeah, torture porn film. And then we talked about Dogma, which had a uh, giant poop monster in it, but has a lot to say about theology and religion. Today's filmmaker, uh, Terrence Malick, is somebody who... I, I think he embodies in ways that very few filmmakers do a look at the spiritual without being religious. I mean, I do think there, there are certainly some religious undertones in his films. Uh, eh? Even something like The Thin Red Line, which was his first movie after 20 years. His first two features, Badlands and Days of Heaven, which came out in the 70s, are much more in keeping of that 70s aesthetic of films. And even though they, you can tell that... Some of his uh, overall visual ideas are in there. They're much more narrative based than a lot of his work in the past twenty plus years, uh, starting with *The Thin Red Line* and going to *The New World Tree of Life* and the film that we're uh, going to be—the other film we're going to be talking about, which is A Hidden Life*. What? I know, and part of the reason I had the idea of bring you on to talk about Malik's films is because I was listening back to our discussion on snarky faith and you brought up the tree of life. And mm. what what is it about what as as somebody with a religious background and a mm. religious religious background from a An upbringing perspective as well as a scholarly perspective, um, what is it about a movie like The Tree of Life that sort of embodies ideas of spirituality uh, compared to a movie that just directly approaches religion?
1: Yeah, it's like kind of like a God's not dead 12 or whatever we're up to now, you know, I mean like one of those Yeah, I mean, I feel like the, the difference. It's a good point that you bring that up the difference between like religion and spirituality has a lot to do with certainty um, And and I feel like when you when you dip your toes in with Malik Certainty is not necessarily the first thing that you're going for um, I think I think it the way he handles stuff and which is why I, I appreciate this is he handles it very openly um, he handles, he handles positive,
2: it all like in a poetic, poetic manner. This is, is it's, like it's it's like
1: art. You know, how how is, how is this going, this going to speak you to you spiritually? We're not going to bash you over the head. head. Not We're not going to give you the answer. answer. We're going to make, you, gonna make you
2: work for it, um, and you're going to have, have, have to kind of just see what, see what draws into you. Um, he, um, he uses so many different things like nature and other stuff to tap into that well. Also with this,
0: yeah. I, yeah, and uh, it's, you know, it's been, actually, I'll I'll admit, it's been a long road for me to sort of get into Malick. I I saw Badlands very early on in my uh, education of really becoming much more of a moviegoer, much more into classic movies, and uh, I saw, last time I saw Badlands was in, like, the late 90s, and I really liked it. Days of Heaven was one that just bounced off of me.
2: Yep, yep, yep. It was one of the same same experiences. Days of Heaven was my it was first first plot. my first time, and I was and like, "Let's like, be great, great. And, and, and I did, and not did not know what, what, to, know know what to do with um, it. Um, um, and, and, some and some of that, that was I was I was used to being spoon fed things, symbolized in many ways.
0: Yeah, I sent I rewatched it earlier, I rewatched Days of Heaven earlier this year, and it connected with me a little bit more. But I still am not as enamored with it as a lot of people are. I think it's a gorgeous movie to watch. But narratively, it just doesn't really connect as strongly as I think some of his other stuff does. No, I but would agree, no, I would agree, agree with this that one. Like, this like, one, cause, like cause I, I, think I I think when I first, when I first yeah, 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 my first, my taste, first taste was not a was good not a good taste.
2: But uh, um, but, uh, um, but I think my second and the up being. Uh, tree of life, tree I think I, I, I did my, hit my toes, toes back, back in back until this point. point. This years, is, years when it, when it, Was it 2011? Is that one? When, that one, when, tree of Yeah, yeah. So I think that's that's actually, actually, for my second taste of Maui, and I've enjoyed, have enjoyed subsequent subsequent tastes.
0: did you see the tree of life in theaters?
2: No, I didn't. I. I wish I would. have. I, visually, I think it, it would be quite amazing in a theater, my, 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 IMAX or something, something.
0: Yeah, I I did see it in theaters. I saw it at the Terra Cinema uh, downtown Atlanta, and it was it was a movie that I really liked. I certainly think I appreciate it more than uh, the other Malick films that I'd seen, and I'd seen his other films like Badlands, Days of Heaven, then Thin Red Line, and The New World before um, Tree of Life came out. But it just didn't, for some reason. Uh, and I think it was because of the, it, it's because of the way he shoots films and the way he tells his stories in a much more oblique and elliptical form. I guess. I mean, it, his structure is very. I mean, I can't say it's necessarily. I. It's hard to say that he's structureless because I don't necessarily think that's true, especially after rewatching *The Tree of Life* recently. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I think a lot of his films they they're going for something a bit more vague I guess and and really trying to capture like like you were saying in his uh, like you were saying when you were talking about his films like he's very much into nature he's very much into um, capturing, he, he The way he approaches the spiritual is f- very much from a visual sense as well as a musical sense. That's one of the things that really I, I, I actually explored that for patrons uh, last year in a uh, little uh, audio essay on the soundtracks of Terrence Malick and it's in his films. And one of the things that's always kind of interesting to me and we can certainly talk about here as well. He, you know, when people think of the auteur theory, they naturally think of the French New Wave and how those critics, Truffaut, Godard, um, they, they basically came up with this idea that the director's the author of the film. I mean, to a certain extent, that's not inherently wrong, but at the same time, there are other filmmakers that don't really have a personal stamp to it, to their work, that you can't really say that about but terrence malick mm-hmm. i think is a filmmaker that very much fits in the uh, auteur theory and if you especially if you look at the images you look at the cinematography you look at the variety of cinematographers he's worked with as well as the variety of composers i think yeah. he's he's so much guiding the way music the music sounds in his films as well as the way, obviously, the images were.
1: No, he and he does it. He does it like a.
0: What, what I want to say is
1: because you were saying that you, like, there are boundaries. I feel like they're just loose boundaries. Yeah. On like the narratives, <laughs> I, I feel like he gives. I feel like he
2: gives the visuals like a,
1: some leash to like run a little bit here and there, mm-hmm. and 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 being playful with some of those things. I think giving us also like the viewers like some leash to kind of, it's it's. I mean, it, it feels like a, a, a contemplative space. Yeah. a lot of what he does because of the slowness of it like i could see where i could see where this movie would frustrate people mm-hmm. um definitely if, if you're if you're not expecting this because this definitely feels like a, a, like a, yeah a, like very meditative very contemplative let's sit back and see how how does this speak to me and my soul when i'm doing this
0: mm-hmm.
1: versus just what what am i seeing him telling me yeah so, so i feel like there's more interaction <laughs> in a certain sense
0: Oh, absolutely! And um, the filmmaker I always compare Malik to is actually one of my very favorite filmmakers of all time, Andrei Tarkovsky. And if you look at Andrei Rublev, if you look at Stalker, if you look at Mirror, which just entered the Criterion Collection this month, this past summer, um, you see the same type of visually minded levels of spirituality and approaching nature from a spiritual place as opposed to trying to get to point A to point B to point C, even in his most even in his most structured narratives like Solaris, Tarkovsky's mm-hmm. always going for something that is challenging for the audience from an a narrative level as well as working you know is not afraid to keep us at a distance emotionally if he feels like that's where we need to sort of meet him halfway as mm-hmm. audience to director mhm
1: what, what what also feels like with that i think him creating space it it draws lines that he wouldn't have drawn yeah like i am able to like watch this and think of like my father mm-hmm. you know during these ages thinking of this or you think of myself when i was that age running around being, like a goofy little kid that was pent up with emotions and hormones and all that stuff i like i can i can think in my head as i watch this and watching like, the strain like father-son relationship in this and, and i go to places in my head naturally
2: mm-hmm. and and
1: so it, in that way it like creates almost like new worlds within me that he had no idea that i was going to pull this out of it so i think th- there is a playful nature to that that he mm-hmm. invites us into
0: yeah and i the the way he so the way he the way we get the narrative structure of tree of life if one such exists and i i do think it does yeah. it it starts out with um int- it it introduces us to the era of where Brad Pitt and Jessica Chastain are a married couple they have children and there's a tragedy and that mm-hmm. Um, tragedy basically informs them going forward, and then we also see glimpses of Sean Penn, who is the older sibling, and he's, we we see how he is sort of disillusioned in his life, and we also see how he's sort of contemplative about the nature of existence, and then, of <laughs> course, we have um, a scene which is justly famous, and really should have been Oscar-nominated for Best Visual Effects and probably should have won, uh, Rewatching it, a uh, scene showing the beginning of creation. And I yeah. love that, um, before we get back into the more conventional narrative of the O'Brien family, starting with Jack, the older son's birth, and going from there until we basically reach a point in in the movie that I don't think I fully appreciate as much um, when I was watching it the first time in theaters and just looking at it as a critic, but we, we come to a moment where Dad, played by Brad Pitt, has to make a choice of whether he's going to, they're going to stay and he's just going to lose his job or he's going to, to have to take a worse job and move, and I, you know, it's funny because last week, last week was my birthday, and um, or last week from when we were recording this was my birthday, and one of the things I talked about uh, that day in terms of my life was what was like thinking about when my we moved down to Georgia from Ohio, and mm-hmm. that really had a profound impact on me because it was the only life I had ever known. And ultimately, they were doing it not just for his job, but also, and they kept trying to say, it's for your benefit too, because of the fact that it's like, it's good schools and it's a good area. And it's like, they were looking at it as more opportunities. And they ended up, they it ended up being correct but I didn't know that until years later, and so I think right. rewatching it—this was my first time rewatching it, watching it for the first time in—I think ten years. I don't think I'd seen it mm-hmm. since theaters. That that connection really hit me, and also, I mean, at the time that The Tree of Life had come had come out, I hadn't lost my father yet, uh, mm-hmm. and I think so. I hadn't had that reflection on our relationship growing up as I have in the past few years. And it's it's just, you know, it's it's one of the uh, great, the late great Roger Ebert said this so beautifully. And he was talking about, mainly about La Dolce Vita, but I know The Tree of Life really affected him. And I, you know, he, he had this great movies bi-weekly series that he did uh, for the last 15, 20 17 years of his life and i i look at the tree of life as sort of like the last unofficial entry he made to that because he's he added the tree of life to his 10 best lists that he submitted to <laughs> sight and sound on their annual their decade uh best of best films of all times lists and he he wrote beautifully about that experience of talking of like how to approach that list and one of the things he said was like once a movie's on this list for him it's canon it's it's part mm-hmm. of it's part of the pantheon and you know the fact that he decided that tree of life was going to be the last one that he knew one that he added to that list it speaks highly to how it m- impacted him and mm-hmm. it's now that i've seen it again Older and more uh, more contemplative about my overall life, it's easier to it's easier to appreciate now than it did then.
1: Yeah, it's it's it, it is interesting about how, especially in, in movies like this that are very much. I know I, I'm not trying to get back into talk about the narrative of it because what they what he did was he picked out interesting snippets. I thought of yeah. life and childhood, mm-hmm. you know that were that were very universal. Um, you know, even even in the pact of like, as 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 we grow older and as our fathers grow older, in, in this and as you have been through your father's passing, we end up we're able to see them in different ways, and and even like I love there's there's a scene where Brad Pitt is talking to his son about just kind of all of his life and his failed dreams. Yeah. And 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 it's it's such a simple scene, but it's also very crushing,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, because it's a very human scene to be able to know that going on there and. And then, yeah, leading me back to thinking about, well, now I'm a father. Like, where have I, like, what are those moments? What are those moments of where I have not been at my best? Where are those moments where I am with my kids? Because it's easy for me to see it still through the eyes of a child. But then I also start saying, like, well, gosh, uh, which character would I be more? Because they kind of, the whole idea of setting this up, I think, in a biblical narrative somewhat, it's that, I mean, he talks about this in the movie, this nature versus grace kind of this. This, this kind of like, it really feels like judgment versus grace. I mean, it's almost like you could, you could over-spiritualize this and kind of say that it's, the father is more like Old Testament God, the mother is more like a Jesus-type character where she's about grace and love and mm. compassion, and the father's just harsh and smacks the kids. Um, but I, I don't know, I, I feel like maybe, maybe, maybe those were some of the, the, the efforts in that. I don't know if it was just masculinity in that time period and femininity in that time period also. Of themes that
0: he's playing with, well, and I, but yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think you know, it's like one of the things I wrote down was nature versus nurture. This whole idea of, yep. you know, which is how most of us would look at it. Um, I mean, yes, he he talks about grace a lot, and it's it's completely, it's completely befitting the more spiritual and religious nature because mm-hmm. he open he opens with a, a quote from Job, the Book of yep. Job, in this and um but yeah the idea that the 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 father is the dominant one the father's the one who sets the rules the father's the one who basically this is my household this is how my household's going to be and the mother is more caring towards them more forgiving towards them and um i mean you know it's like it it basically it this is this is something that no doubt is born out Malick's Malik's memories of growing up. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, you know, the 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 movie is such a it's such a beautiful film. It's shot by yeah. uh Emmanuel Luzbeski, who is uh, whose nickname is Chivo. Um, he should have won the Oscar for cinematography for this. This was a mm-hmm. stunning accomplishment. He he's since won a couple of others, so but um the, the fact that his his camera is so his, his camera just flows his camera just yeah. moves effortlessly and something you see in other um, other Malik films as well I mean this is where I think Malik as an auteur really uh, comes alive because you look at mm-hmm. you you think back to images John Dole uh, shot for the thin red Line. or mm-hmm. and I mean Besky... Uh, was basically Malk's cinematographer from the New world to uh, song to song, which was his most mm-hmm. his, his film previous to a hidden life. And mm-hmm. you you just look at the fact that he's I love that that camera is always moving and the camera is mm-hmm. always moving in interesting ways, but doesn't feel jarring. I think, I think that's one of the things that's kind of surprising and that's one of the things that kind of can throw an audience off when it comes to Malik is the fact that his camera is arguably moving as quickly as any Michael Bay film. But <laughs> the way... <laughs> that's he, a good point, yes, yes, yes. The yes. way he edits it and the way yeah. that it's moving in context of the narrative is what makes it much more interesting to Watch mm-hmm. and much more int- much more contemplative too.
1: Yeah, in one sense, it seems like you're either like in a dream or like a vision where it's just kind of reality feels like it's moving a bit and and but part of it also just makes you feel like you're there.
2: Mm-hmm. I, I, he
1: has this he has this amazing ability to capture like to capture like the ordinariness. In life, in a way that feels very truthful, it's kind of like the anti, like Norman Rockwell kind of. I don't know. I feel like Norman Rockwell is very posed in like Americana. Mm-hmm. I feel like this is just very like naturalistic what like 1950s Americana looked like. Because how beautiful are Brad Pitt and Jessica Chastain yeah. in this? And, <laughs> they're like picture perfect in how they filmed this with him and his crew cut. And I'm just like this. Yeah, they 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 embody that very well.
0: And it's interesting because of the fact that like I think the first time I saw it, I didn't necessarily recognize Pitt and Chastain as characters. I didn't necessarily and I think that's that's one of the things that sort of could throw a first timer off if you're not attuned to Malik and you haven't Mm -hmm. necessarily seen his films before so you're not necessarily aware of how he tells stories that they feel like they almost feel like I guess I don't know. I'm trying to think of the best word to describe it. They they feel like sort of placeholders or I mm. guess in they've um, They're very almost like uh, characters.
1: They're almost like monolithic or like I like they're because it's I feel like it's like from the perspective of a kid and how you see your oh, parents. yeah. 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 I mean, but you're right about that too that they also are very they're very much drawn in a certain way.
0: Mm-hmm. But and I that that type of ideas and the idea of monolithic and uh, you know statuesque I think is a good way. Basically yeah. they're they're you they're the child's perspective on what their parents were like, but not quite. Sort of sort of like how we imagine our parents like when we're that young, but mm-hmm. not necessarily without that human without necessarily that humanity that they really have that we don't really come to appreciate until we grow as we until as we grow older
1: yeah that's a very good point and with that no uh, i I, yeah no i yeah i think no i think that like oh also did you i i i I, I, I know i didn't notice this first time i didn't even notice this until like later in the film did you notice who the little brother was
0: Uh, i was ty sheridan right
1: yeah, I was. Yeah. I was like, I was like, who is? Yeah, it? Oh, his, I think.
0: His, yeah, it was Ty Sheridan. Yeah, it's his. first yeah, uh, uh, first Ready film. Player One, etc. cetera. Yeah. is that is
1: okay? It I is did It took me a while film. to like. It took me a while to hone in on him. Um, the second time watching it, I wouldn't have known who he was the first time. Yeah, but. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, Ty Sheridan from Ready Player One and a bunch of other stuff. But uh, yeah, it's a uh, yeah, and um, I it's this. I was surprised how much, you know, it's like I I'm somebody who. We, we don't have kids, but, I mean, mm-hmm. we have cats, but we don't have kids. We have, but we have a lot of nieces and nephews, so it's like we mm-hmm. seeing them grow up is, you know, kind of, you know, that's, that's kind of where we are with regards to that, so um, I, but yeah, the thing that connected with me so much more this time was just realizing, um, you know, that this is, this, it, it's, it's essentially a memory piece. It it reminds yep. me, and it does actually, in a lot of ways, it does remind me of Tarkovsky's Mirror, which is very much a memory piece of Tarkovsky's uh, childhood. But in a very, I mean, if you know, we we talk about how vague and uh, how vague the narrative can be with Malick. It's even more so in Mirror in Tarkovsky's mm-hmm. film. Uh, it's still a beautiful film if you get a chance to watch it, but it's also it's a challenging film. But I think ultimately both, peop- both filmmakers have their hearts in the uh, right place and uh, in terms of what they're trying to do and how they're trying to do it. Um, mm-hmm. you know, as I, I'm, I, I'm somebody who I'm a film score buff. I have been for 20 plus for about almost 30 years at this point. And, uh, you know, the, the, the way Malik uses music in this is interesting because of the fact that it's usually sort of like with Kubrick, it's it's a combination of classical music as well as original score. And this time the score is present is composed by Alexander Desplat, who's become a wildly well acclaimed composer. He's done he did some of the Harry Potter movies he did. He's done a lot of Wes Anderson's work. He's mm-hmm. also he also did the uh, Godzilla reboot Warner Brothers did several years ago. He he's done a wide variety of stuff, and it's been great to hear him grow as a composer. And you know it it's one of those things where I you almost wonder you almost wonder to a certain extent how a composer feels when they're having to share the sonic landscape with classical yeah. music. But I, I feel like if you're a composer and you're going to a Terrence Malick film, you kind of know that that's kind of going to be the case right off the bat. And what he does is very beautiful. It's really, yeah. it it captures your memory. It captures the imagination, the visual style of what you're looking at, as much as the classical music that he uses as well. No,
1: it's very beautiful and how it pairs well. Like I, w- I would be almost curious, cause I would think like scoring a normal film, it, the beats are a lot simpler. Like you kind of know what you're going for in, in a yeah. traditional narrative to where this is almost like, I feel like he's giving even the composer space, but like giving him like, I'm wanting these emotions, these feelings, I'm wanting some of this and that. But like I, I, I would almost think that in many ways this this would be very. Uh, it seems like they would work a lot hand in hand doing this because oh, yeah. of because of the vast space that that that, that you're offering mm-hmm. a composer, and you're not you're not necessarily nailing them down to like this is suspense. This is this. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um I feel like you're drawing a lot.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I remember you know it's like because uh, he he's worked with a number of really terrific composers. Days of Heaven was scored by. Ennio Morricone, Thin Red Line was scored by Hans Zimmer, New mm. World was scored by James Horner, and then uh, Hidden Life has a score by James Newton Howard, and uh, we'll talk about that one a little bit uh, when we get to Hidden Life. And I I love it's always been kind of interesting to hear composers talk about their experiences. I think I mm. think especially I know James Horner it, he had was I, I think he kind of had a rough time with um, Malik even though it's one of his it's probably one of my favorite scores of his uh, mm-hmm. and they but and it's still very much resolutely a James Horner score but also fits within the larger framework of the music that Malik inspires in his films um I mean but I think somebody like Zimmer and uh, Desplot who very much are more. Experimental or more interested in mood are more interested in uh, capturing a at- sense of atmosphere more than that goes with emotion, as opposed to big thematic work writing. I, mm-hmm. I think I think this type of thing works beautifully for them, and yeah. I mean you can definitely hear them. The score,
1: no, it it, it 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 pairs so well with the things like even thinking about. Um... You, like the, it, the the whole creation narrative. It's kind of. It's. I don't know if it's the middle, but it's, it feels like it's it's kind of in the center-ish
2: mm-hmm.
1: of the film. Yeah. Or, and and it just it, it could to me. I felt like that almost was rivaling like Space Odyssey. Yeah. Is what it brought me back to at the beginning of it. Even the music and how powerful all mm-hmm. that was. Uh, I can't imagine. You're right. I, I I the film would have been different in the hands of a different composer. Yeah. You know, for better or worse. Um. But but it's it is interesting about how much of a role that, that the music played in this because it's between all the spaces because there's not a lot of talking.
0: Well there it's funny because there is there is a lot of talking on in terms of the voiceover. Yeah the there, narration just a yes, lot of voiceover yes, yes. so you, you hear a lot of talking yep. you just don't hear a lot of scenes being played out in mm-hmm. the conventional way that we're used to. I mean that was something that I will you know I went back and reread my initial review of the movie and it's like, I, I wasn't a big fan of that because it's like, it, it kind of hit me the wrong way in Thin Red Line, it kind of hit me the wrong way with The New World, and it kind of hit me the wrong way here, but re-watching it, like, I it's, it's absolutely the best way to approach it. And I mean, I think mm-hmm. because of the fact that it's easier, it has been easier for me to notice, it's easier for me to notice now what, how much more structure is in this movie than I initially thought it was. And it's funny, you were talking about the creation scene, and that's actually what I was going to get to next, because you can't, and it's funny, I didn't mention in my written review, but you can't really talk about the trade of life without talking about this amazing, like, I don't know, 10, 15-minute sequence at least, of essentially showing the creation of the universe. And Mm -hmm. uh, it's as bold as the Rave Spring sequence in Fantasia and how it does Mm -hmm. that. It's One of the visual effects artists is the legendary Douglas Trumbull, who is best known for his work on 2001, as well as Blade Runner. So the comparison 2001 is completely appropriate. Um, And it is just, it's such a breathtaking, naturalistic look at the beginning of the universe. And Mm -hmm. the way that, I I would love to watch, I would love to watch a behind the scenes on how they conceptualize Mm -hmm. this, how they decide to visualize this, because it's some of the most remarkable effects work I've ever seen. And it's also, but it's also based out of a naturalistic view of the world, too. Mm-hmm. And um, the dinosaurs in this movie just look absolutely stunning. They mm-hmm. don't do a lot of what we're used to in the Jurassic movies, but they don't need to. They're it, And know. it's funny because of the fact that I while I think they probably look more realistic than the uh, dinosaurs in the Jurassic movies, in a way they're also impressionistic because of the fact that everything in that se- that sequence is... it's You can tell it's something that is... You would see in the real world. Mm-hmm. And they basically... And the dinosaurs don't do much. They basically kind of just... Stand off in the distance or they come up close or they are just laying on the ground and so they're not necessarily doing anything, they're just there. And it's it's really uh it's it's really just a wonderful um it, it's really just a wonderful uh evocative use yeah. of visual effects and to tell this story
1: well and what's what's interesting is i know that this would probably this this vision of public creation would probably piss off a lot of evangelicals or conservatives but i i think like for me like it wasn't for me in my faith and spirituality i was like i i think this is beautiful and i think that this speaks to 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 a, a a a higher level of creativity and beauty that is happening you know, so for me, it was it wasn't something that was like, oh no, my faith. Ah no, I could appreciate it completely because I'm like, I'm seeing what's happening here. yeah. And I don't know if it meant this and I don't know if I'm pulling too much threads because it almost seemed like we were moving from like uh, ocean and water to land and how things progress. and mm-hmm. then we kind of moved back to the ocean with Sean Penn towards the end. yeah, because he's like, he's in the desert, and it's dry and then we eventually kind of move back out to that. So I don't know if that was intentional that there's a symmetry there. Or if it was just accidental with that, but I,
0: oh, I, with Malik, I would completely imagine there's a symmetry. And actually, uh, uh, no, I mean, I, I think it with Malik, it's got to be completely symmetrical. The idea of beginning in a certain place, moving to another area, and then continuing there. And it's interesting because of the fact that I, I do think we, you know, we start off in this very desolate landscape when we get to the beginning of uh the the beginning of nature and animals uh coming into nature in that sequence and then it's basically another desolate landscape at Mm -hmm. by the time at the end which we've sort of foreshadowed in the earlier scene with sean penn it's essentially you know i i sort of i i know in my initial review i likened it to sort of like Malik's interpretation of the rapture of what mm. Christian, what certain Christians mm-hmm. think of in terms of the rapture, or but I mean, really, you could just look at it as the afterlife in general. And Are you like I a Lord mean, of the
1: Rings? We're on a boat. We're going off now. Yeah, see you guys. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like I like mean, an easy afterlife. Yeah.
0: It's it's fascinating to see just how much and yeah. I mean, I I completely under. Stand where you're coming from when it comes to like you know most Christians would just be completely turned off and would be horrified by that idea of creation, sort of like what they kind of were during the uh, scene in Fantasia when they when they did that during the Ray of Spring and um it's you know it's funny because I actually watched I I picked up the Criterion for this uh, because of the fact that I wanted to watch the extended version of the tree of life. How much, how much longer is it? It's like 50 minutes longer. And oh one boy. of the things okay. yeah. And so one of the things I will admit it and it's it's not a director's cut in the traditional sense. It's basically just and I mean even Malick said that the version that came out in theaters is is sort of definitive version of the movie. Uh, the expanded the extended version is just something he did for Criterion. I mean, they actually put up the money to produce it. So, um, and it so it's specifically on that disc. But the thing that was so interesting, I just watched it in preparation today for the podcast because I'd never seen it before. Most of it is just expanding on the scenes that are there. You do see a lot more. Uh, you do see a lot more of the effect scenes and stuff like that for the creation scene, sequence as and you get a lot more scenes of them as of the kids and of that big chunk from when Jack is born basically to the very end of the movie you basically get big chunks of scenes that were deleted from the original version and they they bring a little bit more fullness to the sense of a life being lived, mm. that part admittedly meanders. But one of the things that I love about the film, that version in general, is that it's three hours. And you know, you were right to go, "Oh my God!" An extra hour <laughs> of this movie. Um, but at the same time, you don't necessarily feel that, especially in the first mm. hour, because he's he. You can tell that he's bringing in other scenes, but they they're so well edited together and the continuity is just so strong in terms of the way he's pacing it that you don't really notice. And it's not until he starts to bring in many more scenes, many more uh, moments that we start to see, okay, yeah, I kind of see where, I I see where he's going with this, but at the same time it's kind of, it, it feels It it feels a bit too much. It's still (coughs) an interesting idea. If you do have the Criterion and you haven't checked it out, it's worth checking out. Um, (coughs) It's the the theatrical one is the superior version, and uh, (coughs) you know it's it's good to see that Malik feels that way too, and that this was basically sort of I guess an experiment the Criterion decided to do for this particular film.
1: No, that's good. Now, would you say like uh do you feel like when you look at the two, are they almost two different things now? With adding that extra 50 minutes, or do they feel very different like as a whole?
0: I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's it's not drastic it's not so drastically different. It's essentially the same movie. It's essentially saying okay. the same type of things. There's just mm-hmm. more of the footage. It's basically just more footage of it. I mean, I okay. do think, you know, it's... And if you prefer the longer version, I completely understand that. I personally don't. I think the... I, I think the... I, I think the second and third hours do kind of drag a bit, um, which I don't necessarily feel happens in the theatrical version. I, I think it's... Mm-hmm. I think he made the choices he made in terms of editing some of these for a reason. Because mm-hmm. some, like we do see, in in the extended version, we do see extended scenes of the kids playing and Jack sort of rebelling against what his father has shown him. And mm-hmm. I, I don't feel like you need as much of that as you get in that in the extended version. And you also see the tragedy of the the boy dying in the pool, and okay. you and that's. And I, I feel like it's, I understand from an impact standpoint, but at the same time, I think it just, it it doesn't need to be, I, I think the, the pain and the sadness of how that basically hangs over everything is told so beautifully in just the mm. moments that we get in the theatrical. Mm. So it
1: almost just sounds like these are just different experiences, what you're stepping into. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's it's kind of like different experiences. Which is very again, like his, his nature is very he's a very contemplative storyteller. Mm-hmm. And so I guess it's just it's just what how much space do you want to give him? How much contemplation do you want to give him?
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean it, mm-hmm. it you know, if you're looking at this from the perspective of this is essentially a memory piece that Malik is creating from mm-hmm. his childhood, he's just sharing more memories for you. That's that's gotcha. basically what it is. Um mm-hmm. Up in in that part of the movie, in the earlier parts, it's like, you know, I I actually like what he did. I like the little bits they did add into it. I I think it would have been interesting to see him, you know, the trim version of what we see in the the main crux of the story with like that first 40, 50 minutes or so that's expanded. It would have been interesting to see how those two worked, but I mean, I I'm perfectly fine having one <laughs> as one and the others, the other because of the fact that it's like you know, it, extended editions and director's cuts can be tricky, because mm-hmm. I mean, you know, a a good one I would compare this to is Apocalypse Now, where it's like the theatrical mm-hmm. version itself is brilliant, just mm-hmm. alone is fantastic. You know, you look at Apocalypse Now Redux where Coppola was like, oh, we're going to add all this stuff back in. And it's like, well, that's fine, except some of it just doesn't quite work as well as I think you want it to. And so when he did the final cut of Apocalypse Now, it came out a couple of years ago, and you can buy it, and uh, it's all three different versions on the same set, you know i finally watched the final cut last year and it was a nice mixture of both or first both previous versions where it's like it doesn't go so far as redux but also keeps a lot of the same pacing and nature mm-hmm. of what the theatrical is
1: mm-hmm. no that's i think that's fast it's always interesting when people have to go back and to like an old canvas yeah. And kind of replay around with it and whether it makes it better or not. I mean, you know, we're not all Zack Snyder
0: <laughs> and <laughs> no. uh, there, there's so much to talk about with that. I know. Um, sorry. 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 <laughs> well, and, and the thing is, it's like, I, I just, yeah, I mean, I, it, there, there's a lot to talk about with that I mean there's certainly a lot more going on than just oh the studio wouldn't let me do this it's like no there was yeah. a lot more going on um, mm. you know ultimately he did get the last laugh because he was able to get his version out there and honestly his version is the better one I, I still think there are issues with it but I, I, sure. I it's the better one you know I mean I, I think if you're looking at the two versions of Tree of Life I think it's more of, you know, it's more of a Lord of the Rings situation where it's like you're Kay. adding a little bit more to the story. Both versions are great. It just depends. Mm-hmm. It's like, do you want something that hues even a little bit more closer to yep. the book versus what we got theatrically, which is pretty great in it, in its own right.
1: No, you're right. It's almost like I think with Malik, it's it's kind of like do you want like a four-course meal or like a six-course <laughs> meal versus Snyder yeah. which is like Wendy's or Taco Bell. <laughs> Where are we going to go? You know, I, really, I feel like there's a little difference in artistry there too, but yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh, no, to to be sure. Um, you know, it's like <laughs> I I I I have so many mixed feelings on Zack Snyder. I mean, again, I'm I'm glad he was able to finish his version of the movie. I, I have my issues with it, but I mean I also recognize that it is a better version of that sure. same story. But um yep. you know, it's it's yeah, I mean I it's it's a really you know going back to Tree of Life, I the yeah. you know, looking at some of my notes, um he is He's, you know, the way he the way he does the creation scene is is just so it it's those effects are not going to age. Those effects are like the effects that Trumbull did in two thousand one, where they're so photorealistic they're just not going to age. But mm-hmm. they're also very impressionistic as well. And I mean, yeah. you know, you because you look at the Stargate scene and it's like that's not a scene in reality. But at the same time, that scene is price is timeless, because yeah. it's showing us something genuinely original, and I I think that's certainly the case with the scene, the creation scenes, and this one as yeah. well. Um, the way he the way he adds that scene of creation in between, because and it's it's fine because it really only happens in like the half hour mark of the movie because I thought. From my memory, I thought it was closer to halfway too. Okay, and yeah. I so I was stunned when I watched this, when I watched the theatrical the other day. It's like, wow, I don't remember this sequence being as early in the film as it is. But it does actually mark a halfway mm. point in the more impressionistic scenes at the beginning that sort of set the stage for what we're going to see later. Yeah. And so it's basically in in that way it's actually a perfect bridge because of the fact that you're looking at, you know, before before creation, you're you're looking at a semblance of the universe, but without really being able to define it. And then mm-hmm. later on, the narrative feels much more defined, much more point A to point B to point B see even though it still very much feels in tune of people of somebody remembering those experiences
1: hmm. it's interesting that you said it because it just now it, it pops some ideas in my head when thinking about this because i know he starts the movie with a quote from the book of Job, and and i know a lot of this is 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 oriented a bit around the book of Job, some of the idea, because Job is, one of, is considered one of the oldest books in the Bible because nobody knows when it was written.
2: Mm-hmm. It's
1: not considered, It's not cons- depending on who you ask, it's not considered to be literal, but more of a metaphorical story about Job, who is a good man, uh, who the devil's like, oh, everyone likes you, God, unless uh, unless life's going bad for them. And God's like, oh, what about Job? And he's like, well, the devil's like, okay, I'm going to make crap happen to him and let's see what happens. So then Job's, like, loses his family, he loses everything, and all of his friends are coming by to him, like, three different friends come by to him, and they're kind of like, what did you do? You know, just go ahead and curse God and die. Like, like you must have sinned, you must have done mm-hmm. something bad here. And, and I feel like that's picking into some of this whole idea that he, I think Malak is pulling at this idea that life is, is, is inherently lost, that there is loss as, like, a part of mm-hmm. life. And then so Job doesn't, like, in the story, Job doesn't, like, ever, like, say, oh, God, you suck, I hate you. Uh, but Job starts questioning God, and so the whole end of Job is God kind of being like, hey, where were you before I created the earth? Where were you when I made this? Where were you when I made this? What and so it's almost like it's they're relating some of that whole narrative between Job and this, this hypothetical conversation with God. I, I think it fits into that about finding if life is full of loss, how do we find meaning yeah. in the midst of it? If life is hard, how do we continue to find meaning? hope and grace in that with yeah. cuz in this movie there's the death of children how do you move on after that there's mm-hmm. the death of yeah, yeah it, it, it's it's difficult but i feel like that also anchors him to being very human too so i think like the, his spiritual nature anchors him to being very openly human in yeah. this and i think that that makes it very accessible for people
0: mm-hmm. yeah and uh you know that that's sort of what makes the it is, this is a movie where almost you almost do need to see it a second time. Uh, yeah. You know, and ultimately you shouldn't have to see movies <laughs> twice. You should have to be. You should be able to get what you're trying to get out, what the filmmaker is trying to get you to think about once. But the fact is, there is value in repeat viewings, and mm-hmm. I, especially with a movie like The Tree of Life, and I know. One of the things that I really appreciate about this one, not only because of the fact that I'm in a different place in my life than I was ten years ago, but because of the fact that it makes you think of it, it makes you think about life in terms of well, if life is hard, how do you how do you react to that? How do what do you make of your life? What do you make of yourself? if all you know is pain and sadness and difficulty. Like how do you Mm -hmm. how do you get past that? And I think that's one of the it's ultimately one of the great challenges of life Mm -hmm. is what do we do when life gives us, you know, it's it it goes back to, you know, it, it goes back to the idea of like, well, if if God's so good, why do good people die? And it's like yep. it goes. It, it's a very simplistic way of putting it, but at the same time, it's like if God is so good, why do good people seem to have difficult times? And it's like, yep. well, I mean, you know, unfortunately, that's that's the nature of life. That's the nature of existence. But it's what you do. That that's where that's where it really challenges you, and it that is actually a. That's actually a perfect segue into our second yeah. film which shows that in as direct a way as Malick has ever approached it in mm-hmm. his 2019 film A Hidden Life which is based upon the life of Franz uh, Franz Jagerstatter an Austrian farmer who during World War II uh, was called up to fight for Nazi Germany and he refused to swear an oath in allegiance to Hitler. Uh, he had previously served in the army, uh, but he then, when he came back, he realized that he couldn't do that again. So mm-hmm. he, when they try to bring him back up a second time, he refuses and he's he goes to prison. It ostracizes his family from their community, and he was eventually tried and executed. And he has since become a uh, he 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 is since become revered for being a conscientious objector. And uh, this this movie this was the first time Malick really connected with me in a truly <clears throat> profound way. Um, I saw this film as... I actually saw this film on a studio screener uh, because it didn't really come out in Atlanta. Um, And uh, I saw it... So I saw it in January of 2020. I was going through a difficult time with regards to my mom and her health. And uh, it was... One of those things where it was it was really challenging me. It was really how do I make what I feel like needs to happen happen? And how do I how do I stay true to my convictions in this moment? And Stotter's story just connected with me completely and Malik's approach to the story just was so beautiful and just Completely was what I needed at the time, which I'd never mm. really experienced in a Malick film before. Uh, this this is I, I've seen it a couple of times since I I personally I mean I I love the ambition of Tree of Life it is a wonderful film I I definitely appreciate it much more now than I did uh, in 2011, but I do think A Hidden Life is probably his best film. <laughs> mm.
1: No, I, I think it, it, it's it's it, it it's it's his best impulses, but it's also probably constraining yeah. some of his impulses too to stick to a narrative. So, but I think because of that, I, I, I yeah, I think it's I think it is a very worthy challenge, and I, and I think that that you have a very good point about this is kind of you seeing somebody finally getting all the pieces like right, mm-hmm. um, like like a lot of what they've been trying to do, and they somehow you know finally he's he's hit it because you're right. This is it's. We were talking about this whole huge story about the war, but it's really just about Franz and Fanny, you know, yeah. his wife. I mean, it, it's it's so small and so intimate, mm. but it's so human. And and at the time it came out, I don't know. I'm curious about what were his impulses. Was he just telling the story around this time period for funsies, or you know, or <laughs> did it, it fits a lot with a lot of the rise of nationalism and stuff when it came yeah. out? I was just kind of going like.
0: Well, it's it, it's yeah. interesting that you well, and it's interesting that you bring that up because of the fact that I was actually gonna bring that up, and it's interesting because mm-hmm. the two films that Searchlight had that winter, Fox Searchlight, uh, now Searchlight had that winter, that could have been awards contenders, were mm-hmm. this and Jojo Rabbit. And it's interesting because of the fact that both of them are essentially about standing up to the ugly reality of the Nazis. And Mm -hmm. realizing, wait a minute, what they're telling me is bullshit. And it's like, "This this is not how this is at all. I mean, now the way I I enjoy Jojo Rabbit, it's a fun movie. It Taika Waititi oh, yeah. does a really great job with it. It's also fairly slight. It doesn't now. I do think it has some profound things to say, but also mm-hmm. saying them in with regards to the in the realm of like dark comedy in a way. Yeah. Um, a hidden life is taking a real life, and it's funny because of the fact that you don't get you don't really get a reference to the holocaust or what's going on with the jews at all he just mm-hmm. uh, he objects to what the nazi party is at its core and the fact that we don't get the moralizing of what they're doing to the jewish people in in life is fascinating because of how effective this still Film's message ultimately remains.
1: Yes, I mean, I, I think I think you I think you're on point with that. Um, especially when we're able to, in, in many ways, just see it. With, with films like this, uh, it, it's always interesting when you're able to see how this is like a story about history, but it's also like a story about just like a small little bit of history. Yeah, you know, it's 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 like the small plant on the side of like a mountain, kind of story of that. Because you're right. Because we don't see the horrors of war. We, I think that he uses he uses like an old like war propaganda to kind of give us yeah. hints of what Hitler's doing and other things of that nature. But really, you're right. It's from a, it's a, from a very small, narrow perspective, and and you're right. It, it ha- has less to do about the how horrible Hitler is in how we know the fullness of how horrible Hitler was. This is more just yeah from a standpoint of someone being able to say is that that. I always felt like when he was almost to this point of if I acquiesce, if I like, if I just fold over like everyone else has done, mm-hmm. um, does that n- make me less of myself? Right. You know, because I, I feel like a lot of it for Fanny was like she knew that's who he was. Yeah. She knew that like 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 to, for him to make a different decision would make him not and the man that she loved, so many times, which is tragic. And,
0: and there are <laughs> yeah. so many times where she could have said. I need you at home. I need, I cannot live without you. You need to do this. She, Mm -hmm. she, she is behind him 100%. And that courage of conviction on her part is as vital Mm -hmm. as his in the movie.
1: Oh yes. For, for being, for being a, a widow in that time period also, like having a father, like, they, cause I, I'm, later in the movie when he's in jail, they're showing all the work that she's doing and how exhausted yeah. she is and trying to hold it all together. Like she holds, I feel like in many ways he goes through prison, but she holds a lot more of the cultural weight and being kicked around yeah. kind of more than he does. I mean, yeah. you expect it in prison, but it's also like the things, these are people we knew in community that are now
2: shunning us
0: and, mm-hmm. um, and and well and that's the other part where it's like she's having to do so much work because of the fact that the people in her community despise her and despise okay. them because they're not going with what society tells them that they need to be going with, which is well, just you know, you you're an Austrian citizen, this is what you need to do for your homeland. And it's like, no, mm-hmm. that's not what we need to do. And it's like, it's, you know, I mean, it's it's funny because of the fact that it's like, we got, um, you know, a few years ago, and it's like, we've talked about Mel Gibson, but uh, we, you <laughs> know, we, we got Hacksaw Ridge a few years ago, which was about different type of conscientious objector. He he sure. He is fine going off to war, he just won't shoot anybody. And mm-hmm. like that story, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a really good story, but it's not, at the same time, y- yes, you're not, you're committed to not killing anybody. You're also mm-hmm. willing to be a part of a machine that is killing people though. And yeah. so that level of commitment, there, there's a disconnect there. I mean, I, I think the the thing that makes Franz so inspiring is the fact that he he had so many opportunities where he could, and he had he had leaders in the community who were telling him, "Just do this. This is what you need to do," and he's mm-hmm. he he just refuses. He and it's interesting because the the Franz is played by August Diehl in this. Uh, If you've seen him before, it's funny because you've seen him, you most likely have seen him as the Nazi officer who finds out the bastards in the uh, bar scene in *Inglorious Bastards. So it's interesting to see him play a character who's so resolutely on the opposite side of that Mm. moral coin. In this movie.
1: Mm. No, it, it it's yeah, with with morality and too, and I like what, what he does speaking with morality about how Malik is also, he uses this film as like an affront against the church during the time. Yeah. I mean, because again, I mean, like one of the first people that, that we see Franz goes to is his priest. Mm-hmm. And and the priest priest is like, what did he say? I was writing this. Uh, your sacrifice will benefit no one.
0: Yeah.
1: That's that that and then he goes, then eventually he goes to the bishop. And then the bishop just ends up quoting scripture and saying, "You have duty to the fatherland," which is kind of like a Romans thirteen, like just do whatever mm-hmm. they're doing. That's, and but you see how 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 feckless and and spineless the church in Germany was. Mm-hmm. And so there, there's a whole there's a whole la- like layer of hypocrisy to this. That he has more. This guy standing for one simple idea that they don't even portray him being overly religious. No, you know they don't. I mean, he seems to be, a, you know, a venerable, and he cares about his community and his church, but. He doesn't seem to be an overly religious person, but he is a person that is that at this point is like I I can't like mm-hmm. I, I just that there's that line and I can't cross it.
0: Yeah. No, it's it's uh it's remarkable, and uh, I think um who's he
1: played? My... I just kept expecting at some point for them to come out with like mega hats, like what does it make Germany yeah. great again hats yeah. or something <laughs> like, but it, but it, but it, but it very much felt like that, like uh in what we've been through over the last while, I, and I don't know if he was trying to pull some of this. Cause I know there's direct, there's correlations to what happened, right? but at the same time, I I can't tell if, I don't know that Malik would be winking about that. Cause I have no idea how long he takes to do his films also. So, um, Cause there's times.
0: <laughs> so he, so the first reports of this film being made were in June of 2016. So it's before. Okay. So it's before Trump came to office. But at the same time, at the time, you had people recognizing this danger of the rise of mm-hmm. white nationalism. And, you yeah. and I mean, we certainly had dealt with eight years of racism and bigotry rearing its ugly head again during Obama's yeah. presidency. And yeah. so the idea that, I mean, he would probably never admit that it's like, oh yeah, this is why I made this movie, But the fact Mm -hmm. is, it's like it. You wouldn't be surprised. You're. It makes sense to a certain extent that he's bringing this movie out at this particular time. And you would Mm -hmm. imagine, especially with his views in his films on the idea of war and the idea of death. The his and it's funny because of the fact that. He almost there are times where he almost seems to have a bleak nature of humanity a bleak view of humanity but at the same time he's also he he also has a lot of grace towards humanity yeah. you can understand where he would be he might be inspired by what's happened white he what he's noticing in the United States and really around the world happening because of the fact that we've seen a marked increase in white nationalism in mm-hmm. just in fervent uh in, in fervent racial violence yeah and, yeah, exactly. yeah and, and the
1: rise of yes and the rise of all of that too no you're that that um we see that and what's interesting i feel like the way he paints the picture is almost the mob is bad like the individual is good because there's other people that will agree with him Mm-hmm. But in their mind, just keep quiet. Like, just I'm I'm playing it smart. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm playing the, I'm playing a smart game. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna mention this or others that are just completely folded over because they're part of like the group mind hive think that they just mm-hmm. have to follow this because they they buy into the propaganda. I for me it's it's this is something like spiritually I'll just say this it's an interesting topic because I really like growing up I grew up uh, around a lot of conservative like ba- Southern Baptists and I remember like there was this whole idea of, about always, like, standing up for Jesus. Like, never, like, and you'd, you'd have things about people that are persecuted, like, in the Middle East or whatever. Like, they would not renounce their God. You right. know, like, we've, uh, like, the movie Silence, or so, this idea yeah. that you won't renounce this. Like, there's this huge, big idea. And and it, it's held up so high. But when me, as a kid, I was always like, well, these, we all know these people are crazy, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> like so part of me is, like, I'm kind of, like, I you know, I'll live to fight another day because we all know these people are crazy. Like I don't, them, me saying words to crazy people isn't going to fix anything, yeah. even though that's me being more, less ideal, I'm being more ideological dubious with this. But yes, I love his conviction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My pushback was always like, I always wonder if there was like a different way. Like there were others during the war, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and other people that conspired to try to uh, use things to be, try to take down the, to, the Nazis from within. And I don't know. But this is this is a film about a small farmer who is probably not going to be getting involved in trying to take anything down. He just knows what is right, yeah. and he knows what life is, and he knows the love of his wife and his family, and he just wants to protect that. And I think that that's very human.
0: Yeah, there there was a uh, fascinating documentary that just that came out in May of this year, and it's available for VOD if you're interested in checking out. It's called Final Count, and it's basically. A documentary it that started the filmmaker started in two thousand eight, and it's basically a series of interviews with people with children who were people with adults who were who were children during the rise of the Third Reich, and you hear them. They had different parts to play. They were sometimes part of the Hitler youth. Sometimes. And then they would become Nazi officers and stuff like that. And basically hearing their words as spectators of what was going on and the and the rise of anti-Semitism and the rise of the the machine that would eventually result in the Holocaust. It's fascinating to hear them talk about that from the inside. From that perspective of being, of just being witnesses to it, as well as growing into people who were, had to be a part of that because that's how, how you were. And it's, it's a fascinating documentary. I highly recommend if you check it, if you're interested in this larger discussion about how this happened and sort of the, the, and, and sort of the environment and the conditions that Jagerstauder's life existed in, and it's like he's not quite the same thing because he's in Austria, but at the same time, it's yep. like Hitler was from Austria, so that is mm-hmm. where that loyalty came from in this that country to be on Germany's side, and mm-hmm. you know it's like it it just it blows my mind the fact that it's like you have all these people who were, who are basically telling him, and it's like, even his lawyers telling him, it's like, look, you you can, you know, just swear allegiance to it, you know, to him, you can like work in a hospital or something like that. So it's like, you're not hurting anybody, but you can, but he is so resolutely against the idea of Hitler in general and what the Nazis are doing. It's, it is so remarkable, and it's like yeah. that's. It's. I we need to be. I. I think especially, especially from after the past few years. I. I think it is good to have to be reminded of the the idea because of the fact that I mean this is essentially about one individual taking on a system, even though he really is not like you like people tell him you're essentially not taking on anything because what he does is not going to stop the Nazis what he does is not going to stop what the Nazis are doing and but it's that one it's it's that act of courage in a world that seems like absolute madness to hold your guns to hold your convictions that is just so profound. And just, mm-hmm. that's, that's why it connected with me. And uh, Malik's, his, his control of his artistry here is fantastic because it really is one of the most conventional narratives he's ever told. But he still has room for those, uh, I, I'm going to use the word poetic linkages because it's like that's a word that Tarkovsky mm-hmm. used in his book. He talks about poetic languages, which are basically mise-en-scene moments of images and montage that don't necessarily tell a, a, a narrative story, but they tell an emotional one. They tell a spiritual one. And something that Tarkovsky did beautifully in everything he does, in everything he did, and it's something that I think Malick really had to have been connected with, too, because he does this so well in his best films. And I, I think the way he does it here and the use of classical music, along with yeah. a score by James Newton Howard, who is one of the more... He, he He's somebody who fans know about. He's done The Fugitive. He's done Dave. He's mm-hmm. done comedies, action films, dramas. He co-composed the music for the Dark Knight trilogy, but he also's done, he also did work for Paul Greengrass for News of the World last year. He did A Hidden Life, and this is one of those things where it's like you have a composer who's very, as versatile as Newton Howard, but he his work for Malik fits within that larger aesthetic of Malik's work. It fits, mm-hmm. you can hear the commonalities in sound and the type of compositions that he's making that you can hear in Desplat's music for Tree of Life, in uh, Hans Zimmer's music for The Thin Red Line, and it's just absolutely beautiful. I love this through line of visual imagination and musical imagination going into mouth storytelling. Oh, I feel like the I feel
1: like the mountains like of uh, in Austria are play like almost a role in themselves. Like the land around it, I mean, it tells so much of the story. Whether it be through seasons, like we see different seasons of them harvesting crops and yeah. you know being able to tell the passage of time. But it is yeah, it it's breathtaking where they are. It feels like their own, which I guess is what makes this film even more. In a certain sense, like audacious in the story, it's such a small story, mm-hmm. and he's and and his character is such a person that's like on the other end of the world. Yeah, like he's not he's not near anything at all, and yet somehow somehow this one little dissenter is 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 being like the thorn in the side of these people that they care that much. Yeah, to have to go through all this because it's all about control, and that's mm-hmm. I mean that's that's the way control works. Um. And, and I don't know if this is like part of this, and I feel like this is very much Malik for both of this, because I remember um, there's just there's beautiful intimate scenes between him and her. A lot of times where they're just kind of laying in a field talking. Yeah. And sometimes it has it has a deep purpose. Sometimes it's really just a human purpose of just knowing how much they're on the same page and connected. But she, and one scene, as she says, like time will come uh, when we know what all of this is for. Mm-hmm. And, and and I, but but I feel like that's also also like a tree of life kind of a thing. Like this idea that we we may not know what this is for. Yeah. You know that there, there's a bigger story that is foretelling here. That mm-hmm. that yes, he did not know his sacrifice did anything. Franz knew nothing of any of this. Yeah. Uh, but yet we are many many years later talking about his life now.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and Valerie Packner, who plays uh, his his wife, is just they are the her of the mu- movie. And it's 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 mm-hmm. great that this is this has such scope. This has such it it's one of those things that I like to call I, I like to call these type of movies intimate epics, where it's like mm-hmm. they're they're tremendous movie movies of tremendous scope, but tell personal stories. Um, yeah. and I mean this is another thing that uh, connects with me to Tarkovsky, uh, his first two films, Ivan's uh, childhood. And Andrei Rublev, which I abs- which Andrei Ru- Rublev is one of the best movies I've ever seen. <laughs> it is, uh, it it is it. You can see a lot of the structural challenges that um, Malick makes. I think in Andrei Rublev, and it's <laughs> it's a wonderful it's a wonderful film. It it's it's about. In a way, it's about the Russian icon painter, but not exactly. It's more about the it, it's more about the time in which he lived, and mm-hmm. um, that's kind of the same way with a hidden life. And uh, it's it's about although this one is very much more about Franz's life directly because Andrei Rublev is is kind of an imagined in it, it's it's more of an invented. Uh, biopic, it's not a strict biopic in the same way you and I largely consider Mm -hmm. biopics, but um, it it definitely feels of a piece with this film. A couple of other, a couple of actors, this was their final film. Uh, Michael Nyquist, who plays the bishop in uh, the film, this was his final role, and then the the great Bruno Gans. He plays Hmm. the magistrate at a friend's tribunal at the very end. Um, okay. And he, he's a legendary legendary German actor, uh, best known for Wings of Desire, the Vim Wenders film, which is mm-hmm. just breathtaking. And then he actually also played Hitler in the movie <laughs> Downfall, which uh, most people will know because of the memes about Hitler, yeah, yeah, nine, 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 uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And he—he uh, he is. I've seen the full movie, and he's tremendous in that movie. Uh, but yeah, he—he he is fantastic as the magistrate in this movie. Uh, he has—he has scenes of tremendous consequence where he's talking with friends face to face outside of the courtroom, and it's—it's uh, it's one of those scenes that you've seen a dozen other. Uh, movies and biopics. It's like you, it, you know, you have this kind of scene where it's like, just do what we ask you to do. How hard is this? It's like basically yeah. trying to convince them. It's like for their own sake that this is what you need to do. And it's like it, it, yeah. it it's just such a brilliantly played piece by uh, Gans and uh, Deal in this. And uh, I, I, I love this film. This is. I'm so glad I was. I would have loved to have seen this on the big screen. I really don't know mm-hmm. if it played in Atlanta anywhere theatrically, but um, I I would have loved to have seen this on the big screen because it's a it's a remarkable film and uh, it's it's it, it is am- and I, you mentioned the newsreels. It's like that is actually something that kind of remind me because In Tree of Life in the extended version malik also uses newsreels at times to sort mm. of show is sort of to put us in the time and place that the movie takes place. And it's really kind of interesting. It was interesting to watch that after what because I had forgotten they uses the newsreels in here, but I love it because of the fact that it's such a simple expositional use to for the sake of exposition. And mm. it just is you know, it's like, well, I mean, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to have to recreate all of this stuff, so I'm just going to use newsreels. Yep. But it's also effective, but it's so effective, and it's such a simple idea. Because, I mean, mm-hmm. we've no doubt seen... We, at this point, it's like, it, in this point in history, chances are you know the rise of Nazi Germany, and or at least you know the basic bullet points of how it happened... And uh, it's, you know, so you don't need to recreate anything to do. It just shows some newsreel and people get the understanding of it. And But it doesn't take you out of the movie. That's what's so mm. remarkable about
1: it. Yes, we don't have that like, the year is 1945 and yes. Hitler is advancing on this. You know, those kind of cheesy things that we get with it. But you're right, like we we don't have that um, at all. But it's still, but I, but I, I think... And you mentioned this earlier um, about the the movie that the searchlight uh, Fox Searchlight chose to push was Jojo Rabbit. I can understand why.
0: Yeah, I can. I agree. mean, if,
1: if, if, if from a moni- from a money perspective, it, it, yeah. it, Jojo Rabbit's fun. It it, it kind of it, it's 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 good, but it, it kind of feeds you along the way. Um, yeah. This is a movie. I think that they I could see with them being less comfortable. They're like, well, it's Malick, but you know, <laughs> at the same time, it, it things like that. Yeah. Things like that that aren't hitting you over the head that aren't doing this. It's the subtlety of, of what they do, and and I I wanted to ask you what your thoughts were because we so Tree of Life, you have two very big Hollywood stars in there, mm-hmm. objectively, or at least yes. Pitt and yeah. and and Chastain um, in those in those kind of two main roles. But in this one, I I feel like if you did anyone famous, it ruins the movie.
0: Yeah, like
1: at least like 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 Hollywood famous. I, I feel like oh, the yeah. subtlety in their faces and stuff is just.
0: Well, and the thing is, is, it's like, it's, you know, and that reminds me of when Schindler's List came out, and they were talking about, like, all the Hollywood actors who wanted to play Oscar Schindler. It's like, yeah, you can see why those actors wanted to play the role. None of them would have been right for it. It had to be somebody people weren't familiar with at the time, like Liam Neeson. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, so... I mean, yeah, it. you can't imagine what... I mean, yeah, you can see actor... You can see big-name actors work being in this, but you also... A, they wouldn't have necessarily been as believable with the accents, and I think that's Yeah, key, that too. Because I, I think you do have to have sort of... I, I, for a movie like this to truly be successful, you do need people who at least sound like they're from that area and yes. I, I think because otherwise it's like I mean and and that's but at the same time you, you have the British accents in Schindler's List but you don't think about it because it's like that's kind of traditionally how Hollywood's done that um, mm-hmm. but yeah no I've, it's easy to see why well it's easy for every reason why Jojo Rabbit was the one that they pushed because of the fact that it, on top of everything that you said it's also Taika Watiti coming off of a Marvel movie, and yeah. so he was. And a you've got ScarJo in it at too. Time. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Um, but at the same time, it's like it's it's interesting. I I I love the idea of people. I I do kind of love the fact that this is a movie that people are going to, as they start to their movie. As they as they start figuring out movies, as they start figuring out movies that they like, I love the idea that they would come to Malik at a certain point, whether it's the New World, whether it's the Tree of Life, whether it's the Thin Red Line, and then they'll get to this one and they'll go, mm. "Oh my God, where where's mm-hmm. this movie been?" Um, and this was this was a movie like I knew I had to own it like the second that mm. I knew I wanted to own it because. Um, I just, I just knew it had to be in my life, and it was, it mm. was a movie that meant so much to me at the time, and it still does. I, I still love this. I, I love this movie. I love how it goes about it, and it really gave me, it really gave me a new perspective on Malik that I hadn't had before, and mm. I, I think that is, and it's what led me to reconsider. Days of Heaven. It's what made led me back to thinking about the Tree of Life. Well, maybe I'll think differently about it. It's like, I want to do this with The Thin Red Line. I want to do this with The New World. I want to do this. I basically want to go back and see. It's like, maybe now that I'm older, and this is one of the things I love about uh, certain filmmakers. I mean, there are some filmmakers that, like, it's funny because Tarkovsky, I was, I was a fan for Mint 1. The second I saw Stalker, in the late ni- mid to late in the late 90s as I was getting into film I knew that filmmaker was going to be in my life for the rest of my life it was that impactful with Malick it's like I didn't have that imp- I didn't have that feeling with and it's interesting that now that I'm older and that I've experienced more now that it feels like okay now you're starting to get more into Malick and it's like, it makes sense that you're more into Malick. And it's like, it, it's, it's one of the great, it's it's one of the things that I love about being a movie lover. Because it's like, look, hey. I, I love introducing, I love being introduced to great new movies as much as the next movie lover. I do. I also love the idea, I also love when I go back and re-watch a movie after a number of years and realize yeah. I feel very differently about this movie than I did before. And usually, mm. and yeah, sometimes that can be in a bad way, but often it's going to be in a good way. And so like, I, you know, and it was funny because of the fact that um, one of the filmmakers that I would put in this uh, perspective of Tarkovsky, of Malick in terms of filmmakers who are inter- so fascinated in the spiritual, who are so fascinated in religious... Not so much religion, but faith and spirituality mm. is Bergman. When and mm. it's funny because when I first saw the seventh seal, um, I was like, oh, "I'm not sure how I feel about this." Because and I had the part of the reason was I had this preconceived notion in my head because I had always mm. heard, "Oh, it's about an, a knight who's playing chess with death." And it's something very different as you actually watch the movie. And then I revisited it years later. And it's like, oh, okay, now I get Now I get what he's doing. And it's and by this point I'm also much more of a Bergman fan. I'm much more on his radar because I love Wild Strawberries. I love the his adaptation of the magic flute. I love Scenes of Marriage, Fanny Alexander. But um, you know, it's like, oh, okay, now I understand what he's doing with this. I get it. Mm. So I, you know, it's like especially if you're a film goer, it, if you're a film lover, and some of these movies don't necessarily hit you, I would. That's why I think going back to them is helpful. You know, I mean, you always want to be looking forward in movies, in art, in what is coming out now. But at the same time, I, I think, you know, I there's. Always value in a rewatch, and I think with Malik, it's been Malik has started to be rewarded with that, and uh, he's he's one of those filmmakers that he really is truly special in a way that I didn't necessarily have an appreciation for when I first in, was uh, introduced to him.
1: Well, I feel like, come on, Brian, you're, this is like, you're making this way more spiritual than we were even trying to go down the road for. Because it almost feels like what you're saying is like, it, it's kind of like, you know, I, I, I wasn't ready for the film yet. Yeah. You know, it's almost like like I needed to be in a place where I was ready to be able to to experience this film in, in a certain way. And I, and I think that that speaks to the beautiness of, of Malik and the, the fact of when he speaks of things like spirituality, he does it with very hands off. Yeah. He's like, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you what to believe. I'm going to put out ideas that I feel like are very deeply human, that you may connect with being spiritual. Uh, but with this, I will, I trust you, the viewer, enough that I know that you're going to connect with it in the way that you need to. Yeah. Um, in that kind of a way, as opposed to, like we mentioned earlier, like the, a lot of the really bad Christian cinema doesn't trust you, no. which is very religious. No. We, we, yeah. we don't trust you. We need to tell you because whatever you're thinking is wrong. So it's it's very different. Like we're on the very ends of the scale with this one tour. It's one's about trust. And I think a good artist yeah. should trust his audience to hopefully get and, him.
0: And and for the record, we're on God's Not Dead four and it's coming out in October. I know.
1: I'm so excited, <laughs> not really at all.
0: Um, there uh, uh,
1: Judge Janine's <laughs> in it. Judge Janine Piero from Fox News is starring in it.
0: Oh so God. That's good that's, Lord. that's um but uh no, I'm I, sorry. I. Going going to what you just said though, it it reminds me to tie into another conversation we had way back. It, it reminds me of the scene in Dogma where uh, Serendipity mm. Salma Hayek's character is talking to Bethany, and she's like, "None of the none of the big religions have it right." And it's like, you, it's not about it's not about believing specific things. It's like. It's not saying, oh, you have to believe exactly in this. It's not you have to have a you want to have a good idea, and you know ultimately it's about trusting. It's about faith. It's basically about mm-hmm. faith, and it's about trusting. Like you said, it's about trusting a filmmaker not to allow you to figure it out for yourself. And yeah, I mean, well, I, and, and,
1: and 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 as we see Franz in this, I mean, that is it, it's. I feel like it—it it, it should be the heart of what you would hope religion would be, even though it's not. This yeah. idea that he's so committed to the idea of doing what is right—you would think that that is the—that would be like the utmost of high. Like that is that that is this is where we want to all be. Like yeah. we want to just do the right thing,
0: and yeah, yeah and, it, <laughs> and I, we don't. You know, it's yeah. like I am. You know, it's like we've—we've we've talked about this several times. I am not overly religious myself. I mean, mm-hmm. I consider my self-spiritual but not religious, but it's like I know enough people who've had that difficult moment where they realized that basically everything that they were told is bullshit for one reason or another. And mm-hmm. they had to make a choice between themselves or the community that they were a part of. And it's it it's not an easy choice. It really is not. Okay. And I mean that's that's ultimately another thing that Malik is showing yeah. us in this film.
1: No, I, I, I mean that's actually what what you've just articulated is is what people call spiritual deconstruction. the idea when you get to a, a point as you're an adult, you begin to realize what's BS and then you figure out what makes sense, what doesn't make sense, and then kind of begin to move forward. But what does happen, like you had said, and very much the same thing happens in this film. Any, like whether a spiritual community or church community, when you decide to leave, that you need to do something different, they kind of act just like they do in the movie. Yeah. You know, yeah. where it's just like, you, you're convicting us. I don't like what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And the best way to say it is you're bad. That's just, that keeps it off my conscience. I don't have yeah. to worry about myself. I just need to demonize you. And it makes mm-hmm. me feel better. That's religion in a nutshell.
0: <laughs> 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 and on that note, um, <laughs> I, I feel like that. But uh, no, I mean, if you haven't, if you haven't seen the Tree of Life or Him mm-hmm. Life, I mean, we we cannot recommend them enough. I think I can speak mm-hmm. for Stuart after this discussion in saying that uh, these these are just tremendous films. I mean. I understand that Malick's not everybody's cup of tea, but at the same time, I I think he, especially in these two films, uh, I I think he's he's firing on all cylinders as a filmmaker <laughs> certainly, but also as a philosopher and as a storyteller. And I sometimes I think that's is that's as valuable of something to take away from. Films as just an entertaining experience. Mm-hmm.
1: I think you've you've said that absolutely beautifully well with that too. And mm-hmm. I, and even looking, you made me look back. I had to look. Look. I was trying to figure out how old he was now. So he's like 77. So mm-hmm. I, I feel like even how we've discussed him, we, we it's it's odd being able to see an artist like also grow. Yeah. Uh, like we're 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 seeing his skills grow, not mm-hmm. not just like in a technical sense but more in like a ideological or metaphysical kind of narrative fix. So it is interesting to see how he's experimented and now kind of honed his craft into an interesting place.
0: Well, and it was fascinating because of the fact that he had 20 years where he just didn't make movies. He was working on things. He was coming up with ideas, but he just didn't make movies. So when he came back for Thin Red Line, it was a big deal. And... Um, You know, at at the time, I was like, "Eh, "I'm not sure how I feel about this." And it's like, I, you know, I loved. It's funny because it's like this was at that period where I was really very much, I I was very much into Hans Zimmer at the time. So I got a soundtrack before I even saw the movie because I'm like, "It's Hans Zimmer. I'm gonna love it." And it was unlike anything he had ever done before. And Mm -hmm. so it was, it was interesting to watch the movie and go, hmm, this is, I'm, I'm not quite sure how I feel about this, but, I mean, and, you know, it's like, this is this is one of the reasons why I'm curious to go back to it, because it's, it's like, I'm not sure if, I'm still not sure how I'm going to feel about it, but at the same time, uh, I I think I'm definitely going to appreciate it a bit more, what he does, mm-hmm. and I think it's because of the fact that now I'm more familiar with him and I can sort of separate my feelings on, oh, well, this is gonna be a war film. I kind of know what that's gonna look like. Well now I know what a Malik film looks like. And so this is this is kind of where this is kind of where we're gonna be. So I'm I'm curious to see how that how how I can how I can look at it through that perspective as opposed to the perspective of somebody who just thought they knew what war films were about.
1: <laughs> yes, that's a good point. I think that, I think I think that I think I had I, again. What was it? When would the when did it come out? Was it Thin Red Line?
0: Well, it also came that out the was. same. It's also it came out in ninety eight. So it was the same year of okay, Private okay. Ryan. Yeah. So I think
1: I think I was I think I went from Private Ryan to even trying to view Thin Red Line and being like a little confused at what was going on. But yeah. I think I was again back in the days of like. I, I need, still need to be spoon-fed yeah <laughs> I yeah. still need to be spoon-fed but you're right I think it'd be interesting to see that and it's also interesting to see when you get actors like Sean Penn that you know like in the thin red line is you know the idea that you can see the trust somehow he trusted Malik mm-hmm. enough to kind of step back into something even more different um, yeah. down years later yeah. down the line
0: definitely and um it's uh it's been it's been great to Stuart. It's been great to uh, talk to you again. Um, it's been a couple of years, and uh, we'll we'll definitely try. We'll we'll definitely. I, I definitely hope we'll uh, talk again sometime in the near future.
1: Absolutely, man. Love to do this again. It's always fun.
0: Uh, where can people find Snarky Faith?
1: Well, you can just look up. It's www.snarkyfaith.com. Look at Snarky Faith anywhere you listen, listen to podcasts, etc. We're on Facebook, Twitter, all the other places too. So you can feel free to look look me up, stalk me, whatever you need to do. It's the internet.
0: <laughs> and <laughs> it's it's a really uh, it's an entertaining as well as an enlightening listen. Uh, it was so fun to be on there talking about uh, Christian movies a few years ago, and uh, it's it's been great to uh, continue that discussion. But it's also it was also great to have Stuart on for this discussion because of the fact that even though we're not specifically talking about religious films in the same way we were talking about The Passion of the Christ or The Omega Code or any of the <laughs> dreck that we were talking about on Snarky Faith. Um, at least this, this still works within the realms of a spiritual film and a film that deals with faith and spirituality in a way that is in a, almost more o- honest than a lot of those films approach it and that's part of the reason why I wanted to have this conversation with him so yeah thank you again for joining me
1: oh it's always a pleasure man
0: I'd like to thank Stuart for joining me on the podcast today it was wonderful to uh, catch up for a little bit as well as to talk to him about the uh, work of Terrence Malick and in particular these two films that's going to do it for this episode of the Sonic Cinema podcast thank you very much for joining me uh, check us out on patreon.com backslash Sanksema. Also, check out, s- subscribe, and rate and review the podcasts on Apple, Google, and Spotify, as well as the Sanksema podcast YouTube channel, as well as my written work at www.sanksema.com. Thank you very much, and I hope you have a good day. <laughs>